Um, so welcome. Thank you for joining us today for another wonderful episode of the Miss Education Podcast. I am your host, Tasha. And I'm Stacey Lindsay. And today we have a wonderful topic that we're going to cover with you all. And we have an, a very special guest today. Our topic today is going to be racial trauma and healing featuring Heather Fleming of In Purpose Educational Services. Um, Heather is also the author of My Black Friend Says. If you don't have that book, go out and get a copy of it today. She's the founder and owner of In Purpose Educational Services, where her team provides consulting, training, and networking services to advance issues of diversity, equity, and inclusion. Heather, can you tell us more about yourself and how you came to the work that you're doing today through In Purpose Educational Services? Certainly, and thank you all. Uh, thank you both so much for having me um, to speak. Th this this work is my passion, and so I I got started because I started in um, social services with the state of Missouri, and I worked there for seven years. I was this, um, a worker and then a supervisor, and then after that, I moved into education and I became an English teacher. Um, but but Tasha, you know that when you're teaching, you become a little bit of everything. And so one of the things that I began doing throughout the district was um, providing salary credit courses about equity, inclusion, um, you know, classroom practices that really benefit all populations, but really have a, a great benefit for the um, educational health and mental health of black children. Um, and then about 2000 and what was it, 18? Well, 2017, I, I kind of had a little crisis um, professionally where I was like, what do I really want to be when I grow up? And, and the question that came to me was, if you could be anything, what would it be? Um, and it was this, it was doing this work, which is equity work. It's hard. It's, you know, it takes a lot of learning and continual education, but it's something that um, when done well, benefits not just black people but all people and so in 2018 i actually um, resigned as, as a teacher and began doing this full time and so now we're in 2021 and things are only you know looking up as far as all of the people who are joining us on this journey so you're fresh out of the classroom you said 2018 i know you retired i didn't realize it was that short of a time span since your transition yeah. May 2018, I said, well, it's it's time for me to move to something new and, and I haven't looked back. But this work wasn't new to you because you were already offering this type of work through the district to the teachers, correct? Yes, correct, okay. correct, okay. correct. So I had actually designed a course that I call Courageous Conversations. I borrowed that title off of another um, really great um, educator that was writing about that work and um, I, I used it, it was kind of a misnomer because what I was actually teaching them is what I feel like is missing in a lot of equity education, which, you know, you make the assumption that everyone is ready to mm -hmm. just jump in and start. And I gave them the skills 
and the um, to be resilient when we began talking about this, because, you know, and how how do you process, you know, what you're thinking? How do you process emotions through a, a, a filter that is going to actually be helpful and help you learn and to um, move forward from it? Because I just felt like some of the education and some of the training that um, we were receiving, even though it was very high quality training and I loved it, it often, you know, had a backlash for some people that started to feel those shame responses and lashed out or they withdrew or they, mm -hmm. um, you know, retreated into some of the unhealthy behaviors that don't really contribute to the title of your book, because we do know that um, sometimes our white friends are afraid to speak out on certain topics. But if you have a black friend that says something, <laughs> then you're a little more courageous to speak out on those topics as they pertain, pertain to black people. Right. And so I, um, you know, usually when you hear someone say, well, my black friend says, oh, yeah, it's like, oh, this is about to be a mess. This is about <laughs> the whole entire mess. The and one so, black person in my life. Right. Here's the only this. black person I've asked that, you know, this too. But the problem is, is that some of those black friends are, you know, you may view them as your black friend, but they may not have the same view. And as a result, they may not be comfortable being honest with you. Mm -hmm. And so when you begin quoting you know, well, my black friend says this. No, your black friend told you what they thought you could handle because mm -hmm. they didn't feel safe telling you the truth. Mm -hmm. And so, yes, a friend of mine, my she, my white, my white friend said, <laughs> um, <laughs> my friend Erin. Um, we were. I was telling her about what I wanted to do, and she joked around and was like, "You should call her my black friend." And I, I had chosen like some really boring title. I was gonna call it like pro tips or something like that. And um, the more I started thinking about it, I was like, that's actually really perfect because of the irony of what we want this book to do. We actually want this book to be something that when you says, when you say my black friend says, you actually come now from a position of knowledge and, and this is something valid that's mm -hmm. your black friend mainly me is saying and it allows you honestly to because that that's one of the things that people don't realize um this work is supposed to drive connection it is supposed to drive community and the more that you can engage in conversation engage with people of various you know backgrounds and that's you know socioeconomic um sexual orientation um, religious, we can go through all of the different ways that we can be unique and special. This is supposed to be about making those connections. And so that's the other thing that I hoped my book would be. How do you do the inside work mm -hmm. so that when you, when it's time for that work to go outside of you and into the community, it actually helps to creak, uh, keep creating community. Let's, let's talk about the book just a little bit more, Heather, for yes. people who are interested. The way that you have it set up, it's, it's a series of essays mm -hmm. that are designed to help people explore different aspects of the Black experience mm -hmm. and maybe their relation to that experience. And there's some journaling involved. 
Um, can you just talk just a little bit more about it for, for people who might be interested? Well, at the heart of everything, um, I'm still an English teacher. And so it's a very easy read. I'm not all the way through, but it's, it's very easy, quick to consume. That was what the intention was. I wanted it to be digestible and I wanted it to be digestible to the point that afterwards you were still like, I need more. And so then that's why, like at the end, I have a whole list of here's some more books that you can read. Here's things that you can, you know, we have the 365 list, which I'm really proud of because we did, we went through and we found 365 different topics that you could research every day for a year um, that would give you a more complete idea, in my opinion, of the diversity and richness of not just Black history, but Indigenous history, of, you know, Asian history, individuals from China, from um, Africa, especially African history. And so I I set my book up in a way that it um, allowed people to stop, to think and consider for themselves and to do it in a safe space. Mm-hmm. And that it also allowed that if people wanted to have, you know, have a book club or to sit and say, well, I read this chapter, do you wanna read it and let's talk about it, that they could easily do that. And so it was um, it was something, I, I, I'm in a group on Facebook, a liberal group, and I just happened to announce in there that I think I'm gonna write a book. And everybody was like, go for it, why not? And so I found an editor in there who is now a good friend, but I started writing these essays and I got stuck. And so we met for lunch one day and um, we sat there and we talked and she honestly became my audience because she said it, she was like, I'm, I'm from a small town in Nebraska where 95% of the people were white and I just don't know how to talk about this stuff. Mm-hmm. And so I know that there's things I should be addressing. I know that there's ideas I need to be really pursuing and exploring and making part of my life. I don't know how. Mm-hmm. I want so would to- you say it's a, a good place to start? Like if you know that you want to change your mindset, you know you want to engage and start entering um, conversations that could at some point bring about change. Do you, would you say that your book is a good starting point for people that don't know how to enter that arena? It is. And that was all the, always the intention. You know, I, I prepare you to be able to digest Ibram X. Kendi. I prepare, you know, my book prepares you to be able to digest um, um, James Baldwin. And, and Angela Davis. And, and you know, not to say that my book is of that caliber, it's not. Oh, we're claiming that though. We're claiming <laughs> <that>. <laughs> but it gives, it gives people those beginning steps. And like I was, I was talking to someone about my training style. And you know, if I lay, if I prime the pump, now we can produce as much as we need to. Mm-hmm. And so that's what kind of the book is, is priming the pump, getting people prepared to now do the hard work and to understand what that actually, number one, what that actually means. And number two, how to handle it. And so I really feel like, you know, when we, when, when people read my book or when we're doing training or something like that, because I prepare them in that way, now I can take them further faster. Mm. As Which is important as- because, like you said earlier, 
everybody's not ready. And most importantly, everybody's not ready at the same time. Yeah, we're starting from the same point in terms of understanding history and experience and you know, where, where they're coming from and, and how they fit in. Do you, Heather, co- considering your timeline of really dedicating your life's work to this, did you feel like this past year was a great awakening? Like I felt a personal awakening this past year where I felt mm-hmm. like, like I've, I've, as a white person, I've, I've definitely been on my own journey. Mm -hmm. and have worked as an adult to do a lot of deprogramming. Um, But this year does feel different in a sense where I feel more empowered and more emboldened to actually like show up and show up physically and not be, not feel like, um, like I can't stand next to my friends and my neighbors and be there for them. Uh, and that my voice, because it's not a black voice doesn't matter in the equation. Like I actually feel like I have an obligation and an, and that I'm entitled to show up in that way. Whereas previously, I think if I'm being really honest with myself, um, I just, I felt like I didn't have the authority because I didn't have the lived experience to show up sort of authentically for the people that I love. Um, I believe that George Floyd's death and then followed so closely with Breonna Taylor and then followed so closely with us learning about Ahmaud Aubrey. Um, it was so egregious. Mm-hmm that it, it, it really was in our society, it was like a jolt um, for a lot of people. One of the best memes that I've seen going around is one that says, you know, racism won't end until white people see it as their problem to solve mm-hmm. instead of black people's problem to empathize, empathize with. Mm-hmm. And so that's where the empowerment comes in and what I try to teach, yes, by all means, you have a um, responsibility and you have not only, not only a right, but a responsibility to begin responsibility. addressing yes. this because in the end, um, this is y'all's problem. Mm-hmm. I, I say in my training, white people suffer from racism, black people be, suffer because of racism. And that's the difference that we need to do. When we look at how do we solve these problems, too many people are trying to go to the black neighborhoods and solve the problem. We need to start in the white neighborhoods, the white right. church where supremacy and privilege are shaped and formed and incubated. Mm-hmm. and to do that work from the perspective of this is just what we've got to do. You know, our, when we look at our schools, some of the issues in our schools won't be solved until every single parent starts, starts seeing every child as their own. You know, mm-hmm. one of the things that was a, an integral part of my teaching style is the fact they were all my babies. Black, white, Asian, 
you know, Bosnian, Scandinavian, whatever it was, they were all my babies. And you can look on my Facebook page now to see they're still all my babies. Today, I found out I'm going to be a school granny. <laughs> Yet again. That's <laughs> and a real thing. And I'm happy, but I'm part of their lives. Yeah. And, and so that was the thing about it is that guess what? When they needed somebody to show up, I was there because that's my baby. And um, like one of my babies, she graduated from Southeast Missouri State. And guess who was sitting right there in the box with her mama? Mm -hmm. It was me because those are my babies. And so until we all get to the point where we start thinking about, you know, that idea of um, it takes a village to raise a child, that, that is real. Mm -hmm. so, so now that we've entered um, that part of our conversation, tell us what is, what does racial trauma look like, right? We've talked about how what has happened over the last year has kind of triggered um, or jolted a lot of us forward, has kind of triggered our white friends um, to say, I have a duty, I have a responsibility, I have an obligation to stand up, to show up, to speak, to bring about change. We just endured Trump as our president. And with that, there have been several injustices, particularly at the hand of police um, being more pre prevalent online and in the news. So thinking about all of that, tell us what does racial trauma actually look like? Um, that's a huge question. And the reason why is because it looks like all of it. It looks like everything we see. Um, when we think about the, um, you know, drug usage that happened in the eighties where black men, you know, eighties and nineties where black men were harsh. But, but Heather, wait, let's, let's be specific, right? Yes. Because when we say drug usage, we need to name that drug because there was one specific drug that came through and rattled our yes. community. You are correct. When the crack epidemic happened the crack epidemic, correct. in the black community, it was treated as a criminal issue. Mm -hmm. Now we have opioids that have hit white communities and is treated as, as a, a health issue. Yep. And um, the, the problem is, is that both are trauma responses. Now it's in the black community it is trauma responses that are built upon what's called ACEs, adverse childhood um, experiences. And the thing is, is that black children are more likely to experience ACEs because they also encompass acts of oppression and racial, racialized incidences. And so you have black children that are recovering from that and then boom, they, it gets, you know, it gets piled on because now they've had an experience in their classroom where a teacher perhaps um, racialized their learning and their education. Um, we have trauma that comes as a result of living in poverty. One of the things we know is that the biggest determinant of high crime areas is areas of high poverty. And so when we have our society being built around creating, purposely creating areas of high poverty and purposely placing certain populations, mainly the black population into those um, areas, guess what? We're gonna have a lot of trauma that arises from it. And that trauma 
what it has lifelong impacts. And, and so I think, and, and I don't mean to cut you off, but I think it, this is a perfect place to include and talk about how black people seem or tend to be the only group where their traumas um, later in life, they're criminalized for those traumas, right? So if, if I get in some trouble, my past, the fact that I had a drug addicted mom, true story, drug addicted dad, true story, raised by my grandmother who was old and ill, in a highly impoverished native neighborhood, if I get into some trouble, the judge takes none of that into consideration. However, my white best friend and counterpart, that's going to be the very thing that's going to save him or her from even going to prison. So I think when we talk about how those, um, I think you referred to them as ACEs, adverse childhood experiences, we have to talk about how just because you grow up and get married or you grow up and, and you graduate high school, those don't go away. And society is not very forgiving of our childhood and experiences as a Black people. Um, that's the reason why, like, and we, we talked about this before, you know, before that we started the podcast about when people say not everything is about race. It is. It is. It is almost everything because when you're talking about that, you know, we can keep skipping to the fact that it also black um, African-Americans have less access to, to uh, mental health care. Mm -hmm. It's not in their neighborhoods. They don't have people that are adequately um, like culturally competent enough to treat these specific issues that we may have as the result of racialized trauma. Um, there are different healthcare outcomes because on one hand, the stress of racism and racialized trauma creates issues within our body because it causes inflammation, it causes you know blood pressure issues, et cetera. And so we have things like depression and, and asthma and cancer and heart disease and obesity and diabetes that are more likely to result from these ACEs that we had as children. But then we get older and there's other, you know, coping mechanisms that we've done, um, smoking, heavy drinking, drug use. Those things also remain untreated because, again, Black people go to jail, white people go to treatment. Mm -hmm. So oh, it's, oh, go ahead, Stacey, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Tasha. Um, and we might be going in the same direction here. So from what I've gathered, racial trauma can be both individual and systemic. Can you just break that down a little bit more for us? Yeah, I would say not just can, but is. Is. Okay. Because um, one of the things is that we, our conflicts and, and the racialized trauma that we experience, we can experience it because of individual actions or we can ex experience it because of systemic causes. So even if the people that are perpetuating, you know, perpetrating that particular trauma, if they themselves are not racist because they are in this system, they, it, it still is traumatizing. Mm -hmm. um, the biggest thing that I teach in, another thing that I teach in my training is the fact that impact trumps intent. Mm -hmm. and so Say that again. Impact trumps intent. And um, I just want y'all to know that I've been using Trump's since before Trump. So, <laughs> okay. Just want y'all to know that. So yeah, impact Trump's intent. So it ends up being that even sometimes some very well-meaning people can cause more trauma. Yeah. Um, 
and and that it it all because then the next thing is that say that you are capable you have the money you have the health insurance coverage you have access to a good um health care provider we can go into facilities and it's shown that black people are not cared for as mm -hmm. well because of doctors and nurses and caregivers implicit biases. Mm -hmm. And so it's like, we're getting it on all angles. Yeah. And a national experience of that would be Sandra Bland, right? If we're yeah. talking about how a black person went into an institution that should have cared for her, they failed to do so. And she ended up dead and we still don't have answers. Um, and, and on top of that, too, too often, um, uh, that's the other part that continues to be traumatizing. Like one of the things that I've, I started doing purposely, the last video of um, a police murder that I've watched was Alton Sterling's. Because hmm. I refuse to watch that. It's traumatizing. It is. It's traumatizing. So do some people need to see those videos? Yes, because you're not believing us when we're saying, here's the treatment that we receive. But do we also need to start making sure that we are, are taking specific steps to care for our community so that we don't keep re-traumatizing them? Yes, right now, the, the, what we're trying to do basically is, is build an airplane while it's in the air. Mm -hmm. um, when we're looking at... When we're looking at treating people, we're trying to build the airplane while it's in the air. And the problem is that it keeps losing parts, you know? So we keep experiencing these traumas and we're trying to treat them. But as we're treating this one, we have, we're experiencing the next one. And so, so how, how would I know if I am experiencing individual um racial trauma versus systemic? What would be maybe one specific example of each? Um, you know, trauma is trauma is trauma. Um, and it just, it just comes from how, in what way did you experience it? So if like, for instance, if I um, am in a classroom and one of my classmates, like for instance, my daughter, she made it, you know, I was called the N-word the first time when I was in second grade by one of my classmates. I didn't even know what it meant, okay? My daughter managed to make it to fifth grade. And so when we look at individual trauma, here was this peer-to-peer -peer racism that thank goodness the school was available, I was available to help her process that and to um, do it in a way that was helpful and healthy for her, okay? But sy systemic might be like, for instance, this, the young man in Texas that was walking home in the freezing um, rain, freezing cold, didn't have a coat. He was walking home from work and he ended up arrested and spending the night in jail because a neighbor called and said he was um, suspicious. That's systemic because now you have people that have taken the entire power of the system and used it. We, we had an incident um, recently in the St. Louis workhouse. 
St. Louis City Jail, right? Where they ended up rioting in there because of the fact they were like, we're tired of these, the way that we've been treated. That trauma is going to be systemic because like one woman told a story about how she was there. She was menstruating for three days. They wouldn't give her any feminine hygiene products. They didn't feed her for three days. All of this because of a ticket. She had tickets. And so you look at that, that either one is going to be something that we need to recover from. The problem is, is that how we, um, how often we continue to be re-traumatized. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, it does depend on some of the systems that we have in place and what we have access to. And so that's the work that all of us need to be doing is, is looking at how do we break down the system. I, I tell people all the time, anti-racism work, it's not about changing hearts and minds. I, I have a lot of friends. I am so blessed that I feel very well loved. And so if there's somebody in this world that hates me because of my skin tone, I, sorry, you're missing out. I'm kind of fabulous, you know? But what I don't want, what I want to change is their ability to then go in and use our systems in order to negatively impact me, my children and people that look like me. And so right then, if that police officer that stopped that young man, if he honestly just did that because he disliked this you know, young man or his implicit bias kicked in, I want it to be where we create a system where that young man can't be traumatized because he has to spend a night of jail simply for walking home from work without a coat. That's the work that we need to do. That's the work all of us need to be doing. So when we we look at trauma in the black community, part of it is to stop the systems that were set up to traumatize us. If we think for a second that that wasn't the purpose, it was, that's why we had Confederate um, statues. It was to remind black people Mm -hmm. of what was capable of happening to them. And so we have generations now that have experienced these traumas and guess what? They're passing it down to the next generation. Um, Dr. Joy DeGruy talks about that. She has post-traumatic slave syndrome. Part of that post-traumatic- that book. Yeah, she has this formula, M plus A equals P. And that is multi-generational trauma together with the continued oppression. So we have that element. Next is the absence of opportunity to access the benefits available in the society. And what that ends up leading to is post-traumatic slave syndrome. And basically what that means is that our trauma has a special lens to it. And if the people treating us doesn't, they don't understand that lens and they don't understand specific techniques for dealing with that trauma, they're not truly helping. Yeah. So, so now that you've touched on individual and systemic racism, mm-hmm. we know that both of those are huge. Both of those play mm-hmm. enormous um, roles in how we function as adults, how yeah. our mental status develops, how our behaviorally, how we develop. 
How does racial trauma manifest as mental and behavior issues in the black community? How, what does it look like, sound like, feel like? We know that racial trauma is here, but how does it manifest as the mental component and a behavioral component in, in our community? Well, um, again, Dr. DeGruy, she talked in particular, she kind of lumped everything into one of three categories. And so it was vacant esteem, which means that we have this negative, um, um, it's not even that it's necessarily negative. It's just that we, we don't um, understand our value, the value in our being, who we are, um, our life, our potential, etc. The next one is ever-present anger. There's this simmering underlying anger that it can erupt into violence. And that's not saying that Black people are more violent, you know? Like me, I'm a lover, not a fighter. And so... You could never ever get me to be, I'm the person that's gonna be like, somebody help. I won't be actually <laughs> fighting. I have cousins I can call for that. Um, <laughs> but there still is this underlying anger that has to be controlled um, mm -hmm. because and it's, it's, it's justified anger. One of my chapters in my book is understanding black anger and understanding it's justified. By the time I blow, by the time I get to cussing and fussing, that's because I have exercised and I have given as much emotional labor as I'm capable of in that particular moment. But here's the thing is I was very fortunate to be able to um, be in environments that let me develop those skills. What happens if you, if you don't have those opportunities? And the sad part is how many people um, that are very capable, are intelligent, are, you know, have all the potential in the world, if they just receive some treatment, hmm. if they just receive some skills, what they could have been, but instead they were dismissed, they were arrested, they were placed in jail, they were placed in, you know, foster care, they were placed in all of these different places that further broke them. And so that's another one, the ever-present anger, and then racist socialization, how not only we are taught from a racist perspective, but you know, all of our peers around us are also taught from that racial, uh, racist perspective. And so the messages that we are continuously sent about our worth and our, and our contributions, um, there's a reason why we have to have the Black History Month. Still, Black History Month was cre created back in what, 19, was it 1913, something like that. And we still have to have it. And we still have to have it because of the fact that we are consistently sent the message that our um, history isn't as valid and isn't as worthy of being um, studied. But it's, it's foundational. The problem is we start, um, Chilamanda Ngozi Adichie has this wonderful TED talk that she does and she um, talks about the danger of the single story. And she says, most times we start the story with secondly. Mm -hmm. And because we start the story with secondly, we get a different impression. So if you start the story of the Native Americans with them attacking white soldiers and white settlers, and we don't start it with what was done to them that caused that attack, then we're going, to, we're going to get a different perspective. 
And I think that that's what happens. We get this racist socialization that starts our story with secondly, because they, they want to say that it's ours isn't as important. So we're gonna start with, that's one of the thing I, things I teach my children. Our, um, our history didn't begin with slavery. Slavery interrupted our history. I forget which wonderful philosopher said that, but slavery interrupted our history. And so we just have so much that we need to do to build from the ground up and to disrupt these cycles of trauma because they have been generational. They're multi-generational. People are passing it down from person to person to person. Mm-hmm. And it's a, it's a lot of work and it's big work. And, and when you really do, when you're, when you are able to start to look at history and look at systems and how they were built through sort of that racial equity lens, but also the intentional way they were built specifically to impact and segregate race, right? Like it's, it's completely overwhelming because it's everywhere you look. Everywhere. And that's a big, that is definitely a big part of, you know, being uh, like a white person sort of on, on this journey. It's like, wow, it's, it's overwhelming. I can't even imagine being on the receiving end living it. So it's, um, I would say this, any white person that is trying to do this work, one of the lenses that I want you to filter it through is, you know, don't make the assumption that every black person is a victim, but do make the assumption that the system has been mm. set up to victimize every black person. And so you think about it from that perspective, how might this victimize as opposed mm-hmm. to walking up and being like, oh, poor Heather, mm-hmm. you probably came from, no, I came from St. Charles. <laughs> <laughs> played soccer. Um, you know, <laughs> I, I played soccer. I played soccer. Um, you know, <laughs> don't make that assumption, but. No, that's a really, like, I feel that that's yeah. such a good point. And I think that helps get out of the the white savior complex. That's what I was about to say. Yeah. The white savior. Because that's just it. I don't need you to save me. Mm-hmm. You know? Um, but you need... But, but do you need to... White people to show up as advocates. Yeah. Like, right. I, I don't like, and I, I rarely use ally anymore. Because I think that that word ended up being co-opted mm-hmm. for the white saviors, mm-hmm. for the people that are like, oh, you know, I call them ally cookies. They want to, they want to earn some ally cookies. <laughs> I love that. They, you know, it's the, it's the white, um, well, in my book, I called it the, the woke white folks Olympics, where, you know, you're trying to compete for ally cookies. And there's not any cookies. Yeah. Through my business, we just had a speaker um, a couple of weeks ago. She's so fantastic. Reverend Anita uh, Marie Green. And she said something so profound. She said, sometimes you won't see the results of your work. 
but you do it anyway. Mm-hmm. And that's what people don't understand. Like one of the things that I have, I have warned people against, quit needing my approval mm-hmm. for what you're doing. That's a burden on a person of color. Again, when I'm trying to deal with all of my stuff, it's a burden to then have to pat somebody on the head and say, yes, good ally, way to go. So Mm -hmm. I need people who are advocates because see, advocates do it anyway. Advocates go forward anyway. And, And again, getting back to this whole idea of trauma in our children, guess what? Our black children need you to do it anyway. Even if, even if no one ever tells you good job, get in there and do it anyway, because it's what's right. It's what we're supposed to do. And it's the only way that we're gonna heal our community and heal our country is if people do it anyway. And they yeah. don't sit and wait for some type of reward for it. Mm-hmm. And, and you mentioned this earlier, you talked about some of the um, help issues that we as black people deal with on the backs of trauma, right? You said high blood pressure. And um, I think you said inflammation. Talk to us a little bit more about that. What are some physical, um, how else can racial trauma impact a person's physical health? Like I said, um, asthma, um, mm-hmm. cancer. We, we have an increased chance of cancer both of those. Every every black kid in my school now has an inhaler for yeah. asthma. Asthma, and everybody in my family either has or has died from cancer, um, wow. heart disease. Um, you know, we have issues like kidney failure because of obesity, because of diabetes, and there's several different. Um, societal issues that figure into all of those things because we can start with the trauma aspect of it but then again you're further systemically traumatized by lack of access by having healthcare providers that don't provide adequate um, care by um, um, you know not having access to um, the resources to get the medications that you need it, it's so much the testing that you need the transportation to and from doctors exactly that you need um, we have whole areas that have no hospitals no um, clinics etc within it and so they have to travel further distances in order to find quality health care um, and we just it's so much figured into it this past year the life expectancy for black men dropped by three years and one year alone. And that's mainly because of COVID. And so it just, and so now we're going to have a whole new generation of kids that are dealt, that are dealing with the trauma that was caused by the death of a parent of a loved mm-hmm. one um, because of COVID, because mm-hmm. of having to be in the home, you know, maybe experiencing um, food insecurity, uh, educational, um, you know, lack of educational resources. We're going to have to deal with that straight up, and you cannot deal with something that you don't name. And that's been our, the problem in our country. We are so scared to name racism. Yeah. To call it what it is. And when it comes up, 
we have way too many people that spend time explaining why it's not racism. Yeah. Then they do understanding how it is racism. And is that the beginning, Heather, the beginning of how to start healing? I, I, that's an excellent question. I really think it's wherever you start. Mm-hmm. If you look at it as a, as a, it's like, it's like going in the, the new house fairy circle, you know, house fairy circle. You see what I'm saying? However you get into it, you might have different entrances. However you get into it, you just need to be ready to go when it's your turn. And I, I am a huge believer in the fact everyone has a role in this. And so your job is to really sit back and think about what your role is going to be to disrupt it because we all have different roles. Um, A teacher has different places that they need to interrupt these cycles of trauma than a bus driver does. Mm-hmm. A bus driver has a different place than, I'll, I'll never forget at the school that I taught at, one of the people that had the greatest impact on our students was our um, custodian, Latanya. Right here, Mr. B, Fairview Elementary. Our yeah. kids love him. When my, when my son was a freshman, that year, the person he felt closest to and best able to reach, and I mean, like I said, he's out in, in St. Charles. But, but there might be another reason for that. And I, I think- And yours, well, it, with my son, it was the bus driver. Okay. The bus driver was an older white woman, but he felt like he could talk to her and, and mm-hmm. everything. So our, where we choose to interrupt um, is a direct result of where what we have control of as far as our realms of influence. Right now, um, through In Purpose, we are re- running the um, Leaders in Equity, Anti-Racism and Parity Institute. And so what we've done is we've taken 20 individuals who are willing to make like a year and three month commitment to work with us and train with us to implement design and implement an equity plan. And so they have 12 weeks of intensive training and then they have a year where we keep checking with them, keep making sure they have all of their, um, you know, the resources, the, the contacts, et cetera, to be able to do it. And so we're teaching people, how do you create equity in your realm of influence? Like true equity, that it's not performative allyship. Mm-hmm. And so that's what needs to happen is people need to sit back and really think, where do I have the power to interrupt? I'm telling you now, it's not in Facebook comment sections. That's not where you're going to make an impact. You're going to so make Heather, an- can you, can you break down, can you break down the difference between performative allyship and genuine allyship? You talked about it a little bit earlier, but you just mentioned it again. Let's, Let's make sure that our listeners know exactly what each are again and the difference between the two. Um, you know, the difference between you two is who's that person that, um, I'll put it like this. Who's the person that went into a small village in a in you know small town in Africa or South America and did it to take pictures but didn't really do any work versus the people who went into that small town didn't take a picture but helped 
you know, build something that was lasting and that would really help everyone. That's the mm-hmm. difference. Performative allyship is really, John, um, linguist John McWhorter calls it front stage tolerance. Mm-hmm. It's basically where you're putting on the show for. So you're doing mm-hmm. the stuff that, that sounds good and looks good on the outside, but it doesn't really make it, you're not making any changes. Mm-hmm. You're not advocating for anything substantive. And it sounds like it our country. It's our country. Yeah. Right? So it sounds like our country. Performative allyship, performative allyship is the company that released the ad that says we support black people. Actual advocacy is the company that says we're going to diversify our board. We're going to diversify our leadership and management. We're going to implement, um, you know, policies to change how we do A, B, and C so that our environment is inclusive. That's the real work. You put it mm-hmm. out an ad that says we support Black people. But for, for a very long time, Heather, yes. that's all they were required to do. All they had to do was pretend to care. I believe that. But we're at a different time. Yeah. And we're at a different time right now um, because what we saw over the last four years, and especially on January 6th, was so egregious that I think a lot of people finally understand the absolute need for real change. Do you think enough people recognized it to actually bring about change though? I do, I do. If you look and you know, I'm not patting Joe Biden, Kamala Harris on the back. I'm just saying something that I I observe. If you look at any press conference and their COVID um, reports, their, you know, anything that they're talking about they place equity at the beginning of it. They address equity um, directly. And I think that what happened is is that in November of 2020, our country showed both that we have a lot of people who are holding tight to white supremacy and to um, racism. But it showed that we have enough Mm -hmm. who are saying enough enough right that that is the way that the tide is turning and when we look at any trend in our country it 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 sways according to the public and so yes we have one party that they really are appealing to their base we have another party that their base is telling them this has to change. And if you won't change it, we're getting ready to start getting people up there that will. Mm-hmm. You know, that's why St. Louis sent Corey. Mm-hmm. My friend, our friend, say it again. <laughs> oh, I love me some Corey. Yes. That's why St. Louis sent Corey and told someone else to come on home mm-hmm. because it's not enough anymore to be a black face. It's not enough anymore to stand up there and say the right right words. We need the action behind That's it. That's one of the things that that I said to Stacy, if you remember during our um, podcast with Tashura, I said in the black community for the longest time, 
we voted black because we 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 had hopes that the black people would do right. And and for a very long time there were some black people who took advantage of our trust, took advantage of um, our our desire to try to do better. They just held a seat. You know, those same people that were asked to come home had been in those positions forever and, and literally did nothing for us. Right now, we have a mayoral election coming up and I'm concerned that another black face might make it into the runoff simply because I'm a black face, not because I'm gonna do what's right for everyone, not because there's gonna be a big push for um, inclusiveness, but I'm simply going to play on the intelligence of black people and say, vote for me because I'm black. Even though I've been in this position for a very oh, long time, thousand years, and has, done have nothing. done nothing for- Done nothing. Your word is still one of the worst wards in the city because you have done nothing. So. I understand. I'm not going to name any names. I'm not going to name any names. I'm not going to say anything. But what I do want to make sure that we're doing, because um, another thing when people get to talking about, well, what do I do as far as anti-racism work? You use your vote too. And you mm -hmm. speak with your vote, you speak with your money, you speak with your voice. Who are you advocating for? Who are you? And you question, 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 question. I think that's another thing that I hope we have learned in the last four years is how attuned we need to be to our politics and the people that are making the decisions for us because we see now 500,000 people have had to feel the effect of the 2016 election. And that's mm -hmm. 500,000 too many. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if for no other reason, one of, one of that 500,000 was my friend Cece. And for no other reason than CC, I'm going to make sure that from the, the White House all the way down to the dog catcher, that we are getting people in there who are dedicated to making sure things like this don't happen again. And so our city, St. Louis, it, it has a lot of work to do. It has a lot of work to do. But I love it. It's beautiful. Yeah. It has so much potential. It just is, it's wonderful. You think about the zoo, just everything that we have to offer is so wonderful. The people in it. Um, honestly, every time I get discouraged, it's because of St. Louis. Every time I gain hope, it's also because of St. Louis. And so that's what we've got to harness. We've got to harness that portion of St. Louis that is ready to say enough is enough. We need some change and we need people who are actually going to make the change because it's an unacceptable to me. What we some need genuine allyship. We need no genuine allyship. allyship. No more performative stuff. Don't get up in front of me at, at the, um, you know, at the meeting that you came to, you know, once a year when, or once every two years, however long when you need my vote. Now you want to come to my meetings. No. I need you here when it's the small stuff too. I need mm -hmm. you listening. I need to be able to call you. And that's one of the things I've only met Tashara. I'm not, I'm not saying anything. I'm just saying, I'm just telling this story. I've only met Tashara like three times. 
But one thing I know for sure is that if somebody in our city was in need and I called Tashara, she would show up. I, that's Corey. Mm -hmm. Corey, I, we used to laugh because Corey, when we first started coming around here, Corey would introduce herself er to me every single time. And I'd be like, Corey, I met you already. <laughs> I already met you, Corey. And she'd be like, oh, okay, I'm sorry. So finally one time I was like, if you introduce yourself to me one more time, I yeah. promise But same thing with Corey, every time she shows up. When we had, um, after Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away, I worked with the St. Louis Women's March Committee to begin planning um just a little rally to honor her memory and to you know give people some hope etc and so put that together i i called Corey. she was already elected she was already doing national interviews she was already doing all of that and guess what she said my my person is going to call you back in 10 minutes and 10 minutes later here here they come calling and i'll be doggone if just that afternoon, she was there. She she arranged some stuff, rearranged some stuff so that she could show up. That's what we need in our community because right now we've we've had enough. We've had four hundred and two years of people not showing up for our community, of of it being hidden, of things not being treated, um, of of intentional trauma being imposed on our community. And so now is the time that no, we need people that are serious about what needs to be done in order to heal us. And we are definitely in a place where we need to heal. And, um, you know, I'm here, we're here, we're doing work. And I'm just so fortunate that every day I get to meet somebody new that is willing to, you know, take my hand and join in to do the work with me and that's that's the biggest thing and so you know we're we're doing this all across and thanks thanks to technology we're we're able to do this all across the country you know i work with people in san francisco i work with folks down in texas i work with you know people in michigan um because it's, it, it needs to be done it has to be done but people really need to get to the point where they start realizing we're past the conversation of if it's racist or not it is. Mm -hmm. It is. Now let's fix it. Let's fix it. If you need to understand, there's some books that I can point you to, but we're tired of explaining why this is racist. We're, you know, why did we have to explain why the 1776 project that the Trump administration released was racist and the 1619 project is not? Why do we have to explain why it's not okay for a school district to offer to white parents that they can opt their children out of learning black history? Why do we have to explain that? Why do we have to explain why January 6th happened mm -hmm. and how it could not have happened like that? if it had been unarmed black protesters? Why do we have to explain that at this point? Why do we have to explain why Breonna Taylor's killers should be in prison right now? We shouldn't have to explain this. So now at this point, we're done explaining. You get it. You're just dedicated to misunderstanding, okay? Mm -hmm. And so I, 
I'm gonna hip y'all to some game that I've that I've been using. I've gotten to the point where I start telling people your opinion doesn't matter. Because some people in our society have been taught that black people need to earn their approval. Mm -hmm. Even in the way that we protest, in the way that we say, stop killing us, in the way that we say, stop abusing us, stop traumatizing us. There are people that feel like we need their we need their opinion, we need their approval of that. And it's surprising to them when I say, your opinion doesn't matter because it doesn't. Guess what? Mm-hmm. Latasha, Stacy, if you're ready to go with me, we're getting ready to go, whether Jim or Jane out in wherever whether they approve of us. We're getting ready to do this work. And so that's what they don't understand. If I sit and I say, I'm going to break this record for swimming the English um, channel, okay? Whether or not somebody in Scotland approves of me swimming the English channel, their opinion doesn't matter because I'm going to do it anyway. And so when it comes to racism in St. Louis, to doing this work in St. Louis, to helping our children to stop um, their, their multi-generational trauma, to do all that, the only opinions that matter to me are the people who were jumping in to help me. Yes. So, so Heather, yes. where can people learn? You, you've You've talked a lot about programs and services. Where can people find out um, about the programs that you offer through In Purpose Educational Services? Well, because of my own podcast, I'm used to saying all of these. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you can check out our website at www.inpurposea.com. That's inpurposea.com. You can also follow us on Facebook and um, Instagram at inpurposees, or you can follow us on Twitter at inpurposea. And then we also have a Patreon and account. And check your podcast too. Yes. So we have the Listen, Learn, Love podcast. It is myself and, and my um, Leap Institute. I mentioned our training program that we have. Leap Institute coordinator, Delaney Ray. Um, what happened is that we would be in planning meetings and we would start talking about various things. And we, we were having such good conversations that she was like, we should record some of these just so people can see that talking about race does not need to be this like contentious, Mm-hmm. so we do we just sit and we'll um, pick an issue and we'll discuss it and um, sometimes she has the lead sometimes I have the lead but yes the listen learn love podcast and you can find that on my website as well um, and that links you to all of the places where we have it which is like Spotify our iHeart radio um, YouTube uh, Stitcher and Apple iTunes and um, yeah so you can find that. And then our, our Patreon, if you want to support is www.patreon.com backslash listen, learn, love. And then just real quick, because I, I think this is key. Mm-hmm. What, what program services do you offer for businesses that want to work with your team? Um, 
Wow. So it's, it's a lot. We, we offer equity audits. We offer individualized um, training programs. And the biggest thing is that we take the time to find out what a business actually needs. And so we sit, we talk to, you know, employees, et cetera, before we design the, the training, because we want to make sure that it's going to be effective and something that people can embrace. And so we have just been very lucky to work with, you know, nonprofits and um, various businesses, churches, uh, a little bit of, of everything, because um, again, our, our training is very personalized, but we also have like certain programs that, individuals can go on our website and actually purchase webinars, um, mm -hmm. speaker series. It's, it's a lot that we, we have going on. And it seems yeah. like as the months go on, we get busier and busier, but that's a, that's a good problem to have, you know, that, that's actually, I'm glad you touched on that because that's where I was going to go next. Um, where, where my household is in, in terms of our life is we, we have uh, a two-year-old and another one on the way. Um, and thank you. <laughs> and, and, but we're definitely like, but we're a multi-generational household. My mother also lives with us, um, which is amazing in so many ways as well. Um, but you have individual programming for families with children, families with young children, <laughs> as well as people who are just maybe on a personal journey. Um, so it's, it's, I think it's, it's all worth checking out and would you say Heather that is your work beneficial for everyone no matter what their race ethnicity background is or is it more geared towards people of privilege um I would say there's something that that everyone can get out of it like when you look at my book yes my book is written to people of privilege that are beginning the journey. Mm. However, um, a lot of, of BIPOC have read it and gotten a lot of it out of it too, because it gives them the language to use. Mm. It, it gives them strategies to use. It gives them things to um, share that can help. And so a lot of my training ends up being kind of along those lines, there are some things that people are going to get from one perspective, but then things that be other people are gonna get from another perspective. Like we have people of all races and, well, not all races, but we have a diverse group in um, the LEAP Institute right now. And so um, they're getting different things from it, even mm -hmm. though it's the same education because they're they're getting it from different perspectives and filters and then they're able to sit and to talk about you know talk about it and how it hit them differently but then also some of the commonalities that they share so there's a lot to get out of um, any training yeah that you get from in purpose so well today everybody we were joined by the famous <laughs> knowledgeable Heather Fleming. Again, she's the author of My Black Friend Says. If you have not picked up your copy, check out Amazon now. It's a great read, an easy read, great place to start if you want to start doing your work. Um, she's also the founder and owner of In Purpose Educational Services. 
where her team provides consulting, training, and networking services to advance issues of diversity, equity, and inclusion in your workplace. So contact her with questions about your direct needs. And most importantly, be sure to check out her Listen, Learn, and Love podcast. She has lots of information to share, um, lots of great conversations about race, Lots of entry-level conversations um, mm-hmm. in secure environments. So check her out. Heather, we want to say thank you, thank you, thank you thank for you coming for on. Thank you for having me. <laughs> thank you for having me. I, I could babble about all of this all day. So <laughs> well, remember, this is, only, <laughs> this is only our first segment. We're, we're going to drag you back in. There's so much. I'm um, happy to come. I I do. I enjoy talking to you. So yeah, there's and definitely it's so a, easy. There's a lot we want to. There's a lot we want to cover, and a lot we want to learn from you, um, especially about like how to do this work as a community, together, all moving in the same direction, um, specifically for our neighborhood. So there's there's definitely uh, we will be begging you to come back. Well, thank you for having me and I'm happy to come back. Thank you so much.